Pastor St. Lawrence, a delight to be here. And uh, last night was a lot of fun for me. I, I am most often asked to speak on missions, and consequently I end up addressing crowds like this one, where the likelihood of 60 or 70 percent of the crowd being unsaved is very slim. Those sportsmen's events, on the, on the other hand, give me a chance to talk to a lot of unsaved men and women who come because of an interest in the outdoors, but get the, the gospel in spite of the fact that that probably wasn't their primary incentive for, for being here last night. Last night was a great time. Thank you, Brother Longley, for organizing it and the invitation that was extended. I think it's probably been a year or so since we committed to this, maybe, maybe longer, I don't know. My calendar stays full 18, 24 months out. And uh, so it's been on there for a while, but I'm, I'm thrilled with the chance we had last night to do what we did there. I, I tell folks that uh, <clears throat> at the end of my life, I'd rather be known for helping souls into heaven than helping turkeys into eternity. <laughs> so uh, today, today is, is not secondary to what we did last night, but the fact is that last night was really a thrill. Barbara has brought greetings to Suzanne Smith's grandmother. Did she come in after Sunday school today? Anybody know if she's not here? She's well. I'm sorry. We'll get to see her because Suzanne's been, every time I've seen Suzanne for the last six months, she's reminded me that I was going to see her grandmother while I was here. So Suzanne grew up here in this church. I just hope that we aren't far enough into the program that some of the adults get up and leave now, too. (laughs) Suzanne's been delighted with the prospects of my being here. And she and Gary are doing a great job. Uh, She met her husband, Gary, after she came to teach at First Baptist Christian School after finishing her training out at BBC. She was a teacher for all of our children. Barbara and I have three children that all went through uh, their first educational experience to, to the completion of high school at First Baptist. So Suzanne was a music teacher in those days, and they're a very, very precious couple to us and their daughter. So uh, she sends greetings. And then we're pretty close to the neighborhood of the friend of mine who taught me to hunt and has remained a very, very fine friend. We've hunted together for the last 36 or 37 years now. That's Jack McCullough. Jack grew up in Corydon, and uh, so I don't know how far we are from Corydon. Yeah, not very far. And then I have a colleague, uh, one of my administrators, administrator for all of Latin America, is Steve Folks, who was pastoring in Clio when God spoke to his heart about missions. He had married an MK. Judy had grown up in Peru, where folks have been missionaries. For the last decade or so, he has worked by my side as church administrator and director of recruitment. And, in fact, he's going to be in the area. He might have arrived already, but he'll be in chapel over at Faith tomorrow and a couple of meetings there and then on up to Minneapolis to Central Seminary on Tuesday. But Steve Folks and Judy both were thrilled that we were going to be here too. So this is my first time in Sheridan, but it's been a delightful experience for me. I apologize for my voice. I'm hoping that it'll last all the way through the evening service tonight. This has been a week filled with flu and a lot of congestion, which uh, has resisted every medication I've thrown at it this week. So you... uh, you are the sufferers this morning for my voice being the way it is. Let's talk a little bit about faith, shall we? Joshua chapter 3. <clears throat> Let me ask you why you find your place there. How do you think faith and obedience relate? 
Maybe you've never really stopped to think about it. Does God prefer one over the other? You want, you want to think of, in terms of faith and, and or obedience, does God prefer one over the other? Is there ever a time or have there been times when one would trump the other? Faith or obedience? Let's read. You follow along as I read, starting in Joshua 3, uh, verse 9. Joshua 3, 9. And Joshua said unto the children of Israel, Come hither, hear the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, Hereby ye shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, and the Amorites along with the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth passeth over before you into Jordan. Now therefore take you twelve men out of the tribes of Israel, out of every tribe of man. And it shall come to pass, as soon as the soles of the feet of the priests that bear the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, as soon as the soles of the priests shall rest in the waters of Jordan, that the waters of Jordan shall be cut off from the waters that come down from above, and they shall stand upon an heap. And it came to pass, when the people were removed from their tents to pass over Jordan, the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as they that bear the Ark were come unto Jordan, and the feet of the priests that bear the Ark were dipped in the brim of the water, for Jordan overfloweth all his banks all the time of harvest, that the waters which came down from above stood and rose up upon an heap very far from the city of Adam that is beside Zaratan, and those that came down toward the sea of the plain, even the salt sea, failed and were cut off, and the people passed over right against Jericho. And the priests that bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the midst of Jordan, and all the Israelites passed over on dry ground until all the people were passed clean over Jordan. Let me ask you a couple of questions. Do you suppose those priests that were leading this entourage... Now listen, the, everything was extraordinary about this. This was, this was not a typical way to handle things. This was, in fact, uh, the first verse of chapter 3 is the account that takes, takes place the day after the spies had delivered their encouraging report to Joshua. Verse 3 describes the ark which ordinarily rested in the center of the camp and when Israel was on the march, it remained in the center of the procession. But on this occasion, it would advance to the lead and be carried not by the Kohathite Levites, who had exclusive responsibility for the bearing of the ark, but it would, in fact, be carried by the priests. Everything about this occasion was exceptional. And what was about to happen was going to happen in a manner where all of Israel could see it and see it clearly. Now listen, they're approaching the River Jordan, and you understand that rivers flow in the lowest available plain. And so, ground that leads away from any body of water typically leads uphill. They put two million or more Israelites on high ground above the Jordan River, 2,000 cubits between the people and what was transpiring. That's nearly a mile. But with a crowd this size, there had to be sufficient space and nobody was blocking the view. For you see, God was about to do something that he needed to imprint on not simply the, the minds of the Israelites, but on the very hearts of the Israelites. He was about to demonstrate himself present, powerful, and able to supply 
in a way that would carry them through what they would face once they crossed that River Jordan. And so everything about this was extraordinary. The ark didn't belong leading the entourage. It typically was surrounded and safely ensconced in the middle of the nation. But on this occasion, it would lead the way. Now, how would you have liked to have been those two priests on the front of the rails upon which the ark was carried? Those two guys whose feet were to touch the brim of the water and trigger the response of God whereby he would dry up the Jordan River for roughly 30 miles. And that's the description that's given. From the cities to the north to the Dead Sea to the south, nearly 30 miles of dry riverbed, where in fact the Jordan had just been in floodplain. It was in fact flooded, floodplain. There were probably two or three sets of banks. Given the season of the year, the Jordan would be contained within one of those two or three sets of banks. So it became terraces, and as the water level rose, the river would expand to the next set of banks. And as it rose, it would extend to the next set of banks. Well, in this case, the river was as wide as it would be in any season, for it was completely beyond its banks. It was contained by no boundaries. I, I'm sure you all, I mean, it hasn't been that many years ago since Iowa made international news for the flooding. I don't know how it affected you down here in, in this corner of the state, but Iowa suffered tremendous, tremendous flooding. You know what a mess it is when a body of water has overflown its banks. And for this to be described as a situation where in an instant... A flooded river would turn into dry ground. This is the stuff of which miracles is made. How would you like to have been those two priests, though? you got two million Israelites watching. They're all standing on high ground. Their concentration is exactly on this ark, and you're on the front of it. And you're to step into this flooded Jordan, understanding that once you stepped in, there would be no backing up. How would you have liked to have been the guys whose feet, whose feet were to, in fact, encounter the water? Do you suppose they did what they did by faith or by obedience? Do you suppose they approached that flooded Jordan haltingly? Do you suppose they put their feet out with their eyes closed? Do you suppose they reached with the tips of their sandals? Was it faith or obedience? We'll talk about it a little more as we go along. But the Jordan is referred to, the, the very name Jordan means descender. It takes its name from the fact that from Galilee to the Dead Sea, the elevation drops a thousand feet. And this river in flood stage represented a formidable barrier. How long did it take, do you suppose, when the soles of the priest's feet touched the surface of the water for the river to be dried up? Abe Lincoln once said, by the way, I heard somebody say this this last week. Was it last week we celebrated President's Day or the week before? President's Day. We celebrate George, George Washington, the first president. We celebrate Abe Lincoln, the last honest one. 
Abe Lincoln. Abe Lincoln once said, The shortest measured elapsed time is the time that elapses between a man picking up a red-hot horseshoe and putting it back down. (laughs) In more contemporary terms, since none of us mess with blacksmiths much these days, in more contemporary terms, think, think about the amount of elapsed time between the light changing from red to green in front of you and the horn behind you sounding. How much elapsed time? I helped train our, our missionary recruits. been doing it now for this, this summer. will be the 24th consecutive summer. And I've been telling them, I guess, for as long as I've been a part of the administration, that if you're preaching, thus saith the Lord, you stand right here behind the pulpit. If you're offering an opinion, it would be better if you'd step over here to the side. But if your opinion's really close to what the Scripture says, you can stand right here on the corner. How long did it take? How much elapsed time? Here's my opinion. When the soles of the priest's feet touched the surface of the water, the water dried up so quickly that when their feet touched what had been that mud-encrusted river bottom, they in fact created puffs of dust. I don't think those priests took their first few steps in a muddy mess. I don't think they're accumulated on their sandals, those big chunks of mud that that those of you who have worked the soil in this part of the world have experienced in springtime muddy conditions. No, God said, when the soles of their feet touch the brim of the water, I'll dry it up. And he dried it up for 30 miles. And those priests marched right out to the center of what had been the flooded Jordan River and turned and faced that growing mountain of water. And they stood there and observed God's hand holding it back. A river whose boundaries couldn't contain it, but a mound of water that only the hand of God could restrain. And they stood and watched it hold its place while two million Israelites or more marched across on dry ground, coughing and sneezing for the dust that was created. I should have stepped right over here with that. <laughs> oh, it's, a, it's a fabulous account, and it's worthy of some ca- careful consideration. Let's just take a look at what's said in this text. Look at, at a demonstration of God's presence. This is why God wanted Israel out where they could see it. He wanted them back far enough and on high enough ground that nobody missed any part of this, for he was about to demonstrate his presence. Look at Joshua chapter 1. Turn back with me to, to the first chapter of Joshua. And verse 6. Listen to these words. Be strong and of good courage, for unto this people shalt thou divide for an inheritance the land which I swear unto their fathers to give them. Verse 7. Only be thou strong and very courageous. Verse 9. Have not I commanded thee, be strong and of good courage. Be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed. For the Lord thy God is with thee whithersoever thou goest. He admonished Joshua to be an example of courage. 
based not on what he, Joshua, is going to be able to do for the nation of Israel, but based squarely on what he, God, had promised he would do. And what he had promised was his continuing presence. Hold your place there in Joshua and go back to the book of Exodus with me. Because this is quite reminiscent of Moses leading the nation of Israel. Exodus chapter 6. Exodus 6. Starting in verse 2. God spake unto Moses and said unto him, I am the Lord. And I appeared unto Abraham, unto Isaac, and unto Jacob by the name of God Almighty. But by my name Jehovah was I not known to them. This is as much as introducing himself by his first name. This is without being sacrilegious. This is equivalent to God inviting Moses and the Israelites to understand that his relationship with them was a first name basis. Jehovah. Now, before the scripture ends, this term will be repeated 4,000 times, but it appears first here. And I have also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage, wherein they were strangers. And I have also heard the groaning of the children of Israel, whom the Egyptians keep in bondage. And I have remembered my covenant. Wherefore, say unto the children of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will rid you out of their bondage, and I will redeem you with a stretched out arm and with great judgments, and I will take you to me for a people, and I will be to you a God, and ye shall know that I am the Lord your God, which bringeth you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will bring you in unto the land concerning the which I did swear to give it to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, I will give it you for an inheritance. I am the Lord. Now you need to remember that Moses, at a point a little later in the book of Exodus, pleaded with God, don't send me on this assignment if you're not going to go along. <laughs> if you're not going to be there, this is Exodus chapter 33, verses 14 and 15. If thy presence go not with me, carry us not up hence. That was Moses' plea. Please don't send us alone. No, no, he said, I am I am who I am. God here revealed His first name, His personal name. and appears here first, but it will be repeated 4,000 times before the book of the Revelation closes. It's translated Jehovah. Sometimes it appears in the Scripture as capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, Lord. It's, it was a concern to the Israelites to never take God's name in vain. So they never spoke it aloud. And when writing it, they often replaced it with Elohim or Adonai or often with just four Hebrew consonants transliterated Y-H-W-H, Yahweh, or sometimes just four dashes. But nevertheless, this is God declaring, I am, and I am expresses eternity. This is an expression of God helping us to understand that He has always been. Before time was, God is. After time will cease, God is. To say God was or God shall be are both equally inappropriate. For God is. A.W. Tozier put it this way, From vanishing point to vanishing point, the mind looks backward in time till the dim past vanishes, and then turns and looks into the future until thought and imagination collapse, and God is at both points unaffected by either. That's a magnificent thought. But here's what it means to you and me. It means that God has already lived all of your and my tomorrows. Amen. Has it ever occurred to you that nothing has ever occurred to God? 
He has lived every one of your and my tomorrows just as he has lived every one of your and my yesterdays. There is no surprise to him. There is no mystery. And when God says, I am with you, it ought to be an expression of assurance to those of us who understand that when he said, I am, he expressed his eternal quality and that that quality was assigned to our assistance. I am, he said, and I will. You must have picked up on it in those several verses. Nine times in those few verses we read, God said, I will. Well, the only way he can is if he's there. Let me race ahead to a little missionary application. When the Great Commission says, Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, it ends this way. Lo, I am with you even unto the end of the age. God was going to demonstrate his presence. He was demonstrating his presence. And when the soles of the priests touched the surface of the water, the river Jordan dried up, instantly dried up. It was a demonstration of God's power. But there was more than that. Excuse me, a demonstration of God's presence. Beyond that, it was a demonstration of God's power. Look again now at Joshua. Did you hold your place there? Back in, in chapter 1 again, Joshua chapter 1, verse 5, the latter part of the verse. This is so fascinating to me. The latter half of verse 5 says, As I was with Moses, so I will be with thee. I will not fail thee nor forsake thee. As I was with Moses. What a thing to say. You know, in the New Testament, Christ declared to Peter, I have prayed for you that your faith will fail not. I have prayed for you. Think about Christ praying for you. Now, I could tell you, I'll pray for you, and that might be some comfort to you, but you would understand, intuitively, you would understand that my prayers are no more efficacious than any other believer who's walking in fellowship with Christ. Your pastor, I'm sure, is respected as a man of genuine godliness and true spirituality, and when he says he'll pray for you, that ought to mean something to you. But my, oh, my, what if Christ said? It was Christ who, and I should have looked this up. It's in the Gospel of John. It was Christ himself who said, I've never asked my Heavenly Father for anything. He denied me. I can't say that about my prayer life. What if the Son of God, the one who had never asked his Father for anything, he denied him? <laughs> what if he said, I've prayed for you? It'd be a wonderful thing, wouldn't it? Well, what if the one to whom Christ prayed said to you, as I was with Moses, so I will be with thee. You know, the biographical narrative of Moses is a continuous thread throughout the history woven through these first five books of the Bible known as the Pentateuch. We're talking about Moses, the object of God's miracle-working power when as a three-month-old he was rescued from death by Pharaoh's daughter. Moses the one who was witness to God's presence in the burning bush, the guiding cloud, the flaming pillar. Moses, the one who was given the benefit of shoes that never wore out, manna from heaven, 
and water from the rock. Moses, participant with God on Mount Sinai, the most significant demonstration of God's person and authority between creation and Calvary. Moses, the instrument of God in the administration of ten plagues and the splitting of the Red Sea, a process which left the magnificent throne of the mightiest force on earth vacant, Pharaoh dead, all of Egypt mourning, and the Hebrew slaves not only free, but filthy rich. Moses. That's what God had meant to Moses. And now Joshua, Moses' successor, is told by God himself, As I was with Moses, so shall I be with you. What a wonderful, wonderful thought. You see, when God calls us to step out by faith, He never expects us to do what He's asked of us in our own strength, in our own power. You had John and Bev Leonard here on Friday night, I believe. I stood by John's bedside when he was transferred from Brazil to Des Moines. When he barely had strength to whisper... And he said, I have no way of imagining how anybody could have been provoked to do this to me. But by God's grace, it's not going to stop me from serving him. God never asks us to do anything for him in our own strength. Missionaries tend to be people that understand that. You know, this business of where we draw our power from. We live in a day that's, unfortunately, we think so much of ourselves and what we can do that we've sort of displaced God. I used to have a friend to whom I would ask the question, how are you doing? And he would say, oh, if I was doing any better and died, went to heaven, I could hardly tell the difference. He meant it for a joke. But, you know, I have a very close friend in Indianapolis who said, I sat with a man in my congregation recently who is managing multi-millions of dollars. And he said to me, I have no interest whatsoever in heaven because I have everything I need right here. I showed slides in Sunday school this morning of Central Africa, and I showed a house that was described as the first permanent residence ever built by a Baptist missions missionary, Ferd and Ina Rosenau, contemporaries of our founder. He, in fact, recruited them for missionary service. It's in a place called Sabute. They raised their family there, and two of their sons came back and lived their entire lives out there as missionaries. They divided that house, and Bruce raised his family in one end of it, and Eugene raised his in the other. And into the family of Eugene Rosenau was born Vernon Rosenau, who is administrator for all of Africa today. He is my colleague. We went to college. We started college in the same year. But he went back and spent 23 years in Africa as a missionary and raised his family in that house. Shortly before he left Africa to come be administrator for all of Africa... He described this experience. It was in that town of Sabute where that pastor's conference was held that I uh, spoke of in Sunday school. He said they were suffering drought. Now listen, 
When I was there, I wanted to buy what they call a poco. It's a, it's a short-handled hoe. It's what all of the African women do the gardening with. The handle's only about this long. And so they work all day long, bent over from the waist. Their knees are straight, their back is straight, bent at the waist, using a hoe this long. I said to the missionaries, haven't you ever suggested to them that a long-handled hoe? Oh, they said, we've brought long-handled hoes out by, by the container full, and as soon as we give one to an African, the very first thing he does is take it to find a saw, and he saws the handle off this, this long. And I said, I'd like to have one of those hoes. And Eric Elmer, my missionary host, said, well, uh, we'll go down to the market and you can get one. I said, no, I don't want one out of the market. I want an experienced one. Well, he said, nobody's going to sell you their hoe. I said, why not? He said, well, they have to have it for their garden. He said, you know, in this place, if you don't have a garden, you can't sustain a family. And if drought occurs and you don't have a garden, chances are you're going to lose a member of your family. So nobody's going to sell you their hoe. I said, well, there's got to be a way we can accomplish this. Let's go down to the market and I'll buy a new hoe and we'll swap it for an experienced one. Well, he said, that might work. So we went to the market. You had to buy the handle from one artisan. You had to buy the hoe head from another. It's probably fashioned out of a piece of old Jeep fender or something. <clears throat> but anyway, I got the hoe head and I got the hoe handle. And, and we drive into the, to the Bible school student village where 20-some homes occupied by students in the Bible school. Each man studying the Bible has a wife and children. Each man has a small house and a garden plot. So we drive into Student Village, and as we did, missionary truck appearing, and the, and the little children, the African children, all that you see them coming from every direction. Before the truck even stopped, we're surrounded by little children. And so Eric, out through an open window, Eric says to the children, "My friend has a new hoe to swap somebody for a used one," and they all just stood and looked at him. He turned and, and looked at me, and he said, "I told you." <laughs> so he, it's all in Songo, but he turns and he explains to them in some detail. He wants to take a, a hoe home. He wants to give a new one for a used one. The first person back with a used hoe, I'll give them a new one in its place. And so the little kids just scattered. And before the last one disappeared, the first one was on his way back. And he's waving this hoe over his head. The, the point of it should have been like a shovel tip. And in fact, it was the opposite direction. I mean, this was really an experienced hoe. It was this way instead of this way. Here he comes, waving it over his head. He runs up to the side of the truck and hands it in through the window. And Eric picks up this, this white-handled hoe because they had just stripped the bark off of the branch that the handle was made out of. He hands this hoe out the window. And this little boy takes this new hoe and he's got his hand like this. And he, he turns and he starts with baby steps back towards his house carrying this brand new hoe. And the rest of the children, all of them with used hoes in their hand now, but they're all circling him like a swarm of flies. And off he goes, and Eric turned to me and he said, I'm telling you the truth, when that little guy is a grandfather, he'll still be telling the story to his grandchildren. That dumb white man didn't know any better than give a brand new hoe. <laughs> All that to say, drought is serious. You know, we have drought in the United States. We have drought in the United States. We don't do without. We just get our strawberries or our lettuce or whatever it is. We just get it from someplace else. Well, the price might go up, but we don't do without. I saw a sign in Wendy's the other day said, tomato crop been affected by frost. You have to ask for a tomato if you want it. Well, they got them. 
They're just not wanting to spend the price for them right now. So unless you beg for it, you have to eat your, your Wendy's without tomato right now. But we don't do without. You have a drought in this part of the world. You not only do without, you're very likely to have to bid somebody you love goodbye because you can't sustain an entire family. And so Sabute's under drought. And the city fathers get together and they're talking about the fact that the drought is serious. Probably the mayor of the town, one of the leaders of the city council says, we, we need to give up what we've been taught by the outsiders, read their missionaries. And we, re, we need to return to the way of our fathers, read their dance and kill chickens. And one of the men on the city council is a gray-headed Baptist pastor. And he said to them, you're going the wrong direction. You should be relying on God. I'm going to have my congregation pray for rain, and God is going to give rain. Now, Vernon Rosenau says this. He said, that would never happen in the United States because no one among us would be so bold as to obligate God to such a thing. The second reason it wouldn't happen would be even if someone was so bold as to suggest, I'm going to pray and God's going to answer prayer, when the rain came, we'd have some... Is anybody here a weatherman? We would have some brilliant weatherman who would stand with charts and graphs and explain how everything came together just the right way at just the right time, and it created rain, and we'd, we would explain the miracle away because we are so smart. Listen, we live in a world where astronauts' activities in outer space don't even make front-page news anymore. We live in a world where I can stick my ATM card in an ATM anywhere in this world and not only get money, but an up-to-the-hour account of my account balance. We live in a world where banks are ready to finance any dream machine you can convince yourself you deserve. We live in a world where we receive the world's finest educations, which propel us into the world's strongest and richest marketplace. We live in a part of the world where we have the world's finest doctors doing their work in the finest medical facilities known to mankind. That's our world. And sadly, our world has taught us to rely on ourselves. That gray-headed pastor went home to his congregation and said, we need to pray. They prayed for three days it rained. And they went out and cultivated their gardens and planted. Vernon said the problem was he lived five clicks out. That's five kilometers. He lived five clicks out of Sabute. And it never rained a drop in Sabute. And he said, if you told that old pastor, look, I can explain this. I've got a few charts and graphs. And I can tell you how this happened with everything coming together in just the right way and just the right time. So it just rained on your congregation. He said that old gray-headed pastor would smile at you and say, I don't understand all of that. Here's what I understand. We prayed and God gave us rain and where they danced and killed chickens, they're dry. See, God on the banks of the river Jordan, was demonstrating his power. As I was with Moses, he said, so I shall be with you. There's a third thing with this we close. 
This was a demonstration not only of God's presence and power, but it was a demonstration of God's provision. Look at Joshua chapter 3, verse 7. Joshua 3, 7. The latter half of the verse. I'll read the whole verse. And the Lord said unto Joshua, This day will I begin to magnify thee in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I shall be with you. Magnify was a token of divine favor. You've become acquainted, I'm sure, with the word accreditation for educational institutions. If it's not an accredited institution, it means that the education there is not recognized as it is if it's an accredited institution. Well, this was God's accrediting work for Joshua. This was to be a seal of approval. This was to be a declaration that Joshua was working for God and that, in fact, through Joshua, God would perform those things necessary to supply for the nation of Israel. He was going to magnify Joshua in the sight of those that he was asking to rely on him. Do you know that God God does not help those who help themselves? That's such a cute little cliche. But God does not help those who help themselves. God helps those who trust him. And there are times in our lives when God places us where we must depend on Him in a way where trust is all we have. Missionaries, I think, are people who are really realistic. They understand their limitations. They know that they can't personally save even one soul. They know they can't force those who have trusted Christ to remain faithful for a lifetime. They know that they can't forever be responsible for the institutions which they help to give birth to. They know that they can't stand in their own strength. They know that they can't manage world affairs. They know that they can't ensure their own safety. (laughs) They know they're likely to run out of strength, to run out of cash, to run out of rope. But missionaries understand that the one thing they can't afford to run out of is trust. Missionaries are acquainted with airports and ticket counters and luggage and lingering embraces and tears and tight throats and taillights. And you don't live that way if your focus isn't on someone beyond yourself and some supply that doesn't reside within you. Listen. What God was saying to the nation of Israel was, I want you to trust me. And what he was showing them was, he could be trusted. So how about for you and me? Can God be trusted? Wrong question. It's not an issue of can God be trusted. The question is, are we trusting him? Not whether he can be trusted, whether we're trusting him. Did the priests do what they did out of faith or obedience? I'll just tell you, I don't know. I heard someone earlier say both, perhaps. But I'll tell you this. If they did what they did out of sheer obedience, you have to think in terms of what if they didn't take that one step? Think of everything that would have not been triggered 
by failing to take that one step. It was that one step which put the soles of their feet in contact with the brim of that water. That one step. What if they hadn't taken it? Then there would have been no demonstration of God's presence. There would have been no demonstration of God's power. There would have been no manifestation of God's provision. One step short of everything that is evidenced about God on this occasion, one step made the difference. I don't know how many times I've had people approach me at the end of a sermon on missions and say, a lifetime ago I felt God directing me towards missions, and I never responded. And I never say it to them, but I always walk away wondering, what is it that never occurred? What is it? What is it that God would have done? No, it's not, can God be trusted? It's, are we trusting Him? And did they do it out of faith or sheer obedience? I don't know, but I can tell you this. And I, I tell you this with absolute assurance. If they did what they did out of sheer obedience... If they just said, look, we were told to do this, I'm going to close my eyes and I'm going to pray with all my heart that God somehow does what He said He was going to do. If that's the way they did it, they still did it. They took the step. And God did as He promised. When the soles of their feet hit the brim of the water, He dried up the Jordan River for three for 30 miles. And when the soles of their feet touched what had been the muddy river bottom, a puff of dust came up. Because they did what He asked them to do. And if they did it out of sheer obedience, and their eyes came open, and they're now looking at a dusty trail across what had been a river that was beyond its boundaries, what do you think it did to their capacity the next time God said to them, Trust Me. If they did it out of sheer obedience, I'm telling you right now, they were better prepared to act by faith the next time He asked them to trust Him. And if you do neither step out by faith or step out in obedience, you will forever be left asking the question, what might it have unleashed if I had just taken the step? Now, I don't know where all of you are in regard to faith promise. I I know nothing about your individual Circumstances are what God may be doing in your heart. I'm just saying to you, if God's working in your heart about a commitment to this ministry and you can't trust Him, <laughs> we'll shame on you, but if you can't trust Him, just do what He's provoking your heart to do out of obedience. And I'm telling you, the next time He asks of you a step of faith, it'll be easier to do it by faith rather than sheer obedience. There's a lesson here for every one of us. May God help us to live it as we serve Him. Heavenly Father, make of us, I pray, people of faith. People who live our lives with the assurance that the God who asked of us this service is not only going to be with us as we fulfill it, but His very power and provision are going to be the means of seeing it accomplished. Show yourself faithful in this congregation today, I pray in Christ's name.